2: Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com.
3: Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On.
0: 1990s Democrats have lost almost every major battle to Mitch McConnell and Republicans. When he claims credit for getting all the money
2: for the 2nd Avenue subway, I wonder why didn't he get money for his freight tunnel that was in his district?
0: Bloomberg
3: Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from DC's top names. Our country stands at a crossroads with our democracy at stake.
4: We need to make sure that that Ron DeSantis is a one-term governor. What's wrong with Ron?
5: Uh, Everything.
3: Everything. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthews on Bloomberg Radio President Zelensky vows to take back Crimea as Ukraine prepares to celebrate its independence welcome to the fastest hour in politics with fresh warnings of possible Russian attacks on Kyiv as the war now hits the six month mark is this a turning point in the war we'll discuss it with Melinda Herring of the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center Primary day in New York, among other places today. At least one incumbent in New York will lose a seat thanks to redistricting. And we're going to run through some important races in play tonight with former New York Congressman Joe Crowley. Analysis from the panel. Rick and Jeannie are with us. Bloomberg Politics contributors Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano here for the hour. An ever more confident posture today from President Vladimir Zelensky, pledging on the eve of the war's six-month anniversary. Can you imagine the war that was supposed to be done in three days? and tomorrow as well, Ukrainian Independence Day, vowing to take back Crimea as part of this war with Russia. That's Zelensky in a video address. Of course, the people of Ukraine have grown very used to them, saying there's a feeling literally in Crimea's air that its occupation is temporary and that Ukraine is coming back. He later said to a virtual conference of nations, the Crimea platform that Ukraine must free Crimea from Russian occupation. As he talks here, he goes into to warn of possible Russian attacks tomorrow, that Independence Day, that six month mark, saying, Russia may try to do something particularly disgusting as Ukraine celebrates its 31st Independence Day. That's where we begin with Melinda Herring, Deputy Director of the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center, former editor of the Atlantic Council's Ukraine Alert blog, which a lot of people were relying on. Melinda, thank you for being with us. Uh, Somehow this war has reached the six-month mark. Russia has been largely incapable of capitalizing on ground that it's taken. So are we at a turning point for Ukraine as you hear President Zelensky speak, or is there another six months of attrition?
6: Hey, Joe. No, I have to be uh, I have to be the skunk at the garden party. It's going to be a lot more than six months. Zelensky wants to wrap everything up by Christmas. This is going to drag on for a long, long time, unfortunately.
3: Why does he think that Crimea is in play? Obviously, we saw a a, a Ukrainian uh, attack against some Russian forces there. We saw some mushroom clouds on the horizon. But why does he think he can retake that land in the middle of defending the rest of the country?
6: Well, let's back up. There have been three big phases of the war. The first phase of the war was Kiev, and like you said, the Russians had this crazy idea that they could come in and strike and take the capital and install a pro-Russian leader in three or four days, and they got their butts kicked. Phase two was focused on the Donbass, and the Russians did better, but it wasn't an overwhelming victory. Phase three is going to be focused on the south, and we're waiting for this thing, the Kherson counteroffensive, but it hasn't really materialized and meanwhile the ukrainians have taken the initiative by bombing crimea and this is the first time it's happened the crimean peninsula was a vacation destination and it's been peaceful for eight years so the message is look you can take our lands but they'll never be safe even if you take and annex Kherson, even if you take these cities we will come back and get them. That's the message that Zelensky is sending by these recent bombings in Crimea.
3: The opening months of the war uh, really wrote a story, told a story about uh, bravery, about loyalty, about you know the, the fighting spirit for someone defending their land, as opposed to a group of conscripts uh, or poorly trained Russian soldiers who really didn't want to go. How much of that spirit remains? Uh, the the part of the recipe of success here for Ukraine versus. billions of dollars in weapons that the u.s has sent
6: so i can't really isolate which one is more important i I, can i say both please so the united states has sent an enormous amount of assistance they just announced three billion more today i think it's over i think it's over 13 billion dollars uh since biden became president it's it's a really big Hmm. figure uh but of course morale matters and ukrainians have been fighting since 2014 they know their territory better than the Russians do. And this is an existential fight. And the Ukrainians are really good and really smart and technically minded. So it really annoys me when the White House and the presidential administration here in D.C. has said, oh, the Ukrainians can't learn these technical systems. They're too hard. They're too complicated. That's nonsense. The Ukrainians have proven time and time again that they can figure things out and that they can make huge progress if we give them what they need.
3: We're joined by Melinda Herring of the Atlantic Council. The message from the U.S., at least, you know, here in Washington, uh, not only the Biden administration, but Senator Mitch McConnell today. We are still with you. uh, And and he sounded emboldened by what's happening in Crimea. Listen to the senator, uh, Senate Minority Leader McConnell.
7: I've been pleased to see they've been on offense in Crimea in the last week or so. So they're trying to get on offense and to try to regain territory we need to be with them all the way and give them whatever weapons they need
3: so give them whatever weapons they need is something that has kind of been redefined consistently over the last six months you can remember melinda the argument about migs and that was never really resolved but there was concern about any sort of weapon that could be used in an offensive manner and we seem to have you know crossed the line on that uh having provided a number of defensive systems as well so you know i keep asking the same question it keeps resulting in a different answer what what does ukraine need now
6: so President Zelensky said today he needs as many armored vehicles as possible, and he needs 155mm ammunition. So that's the immediate request today. But they really need long-range missiles that they can shoot from these HIMARS systems, and the White House has been reluctant to send it. I love Mitch McConnell's statement that you just played, give them what they need. Well, I, I hope that the White House will-, will take him seriously, because it's long-range missiles that can make a, ma- a major difference uh in, in uh put you know enabling uh Ukraine to go on the offensive.
4: Yeah.
3: Apparently uh Vladimir Putin is is uh very angry about this 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 whole assassination story. This is the daughter of of an ally of his uh Daria Dugina whether or not she was uh, targeted maybe they both were is unclear uh but there's going to be an apparent investigation in Russia the State Department seems to be kind of smirking at that idea of it, of it being a valid investigation. But how does that change the contours of this war? Does, does that make Vladimir Putin dig in ever more, or is there no such thing with him?
6: Okay, so, so let me dispel one rumor. Okay. Uh, the, 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 Dugan and Putin are not besties. So Dugan is often called Putin's brain, and that's not exactly right. Hmm. He is one of the people who helped create the environment— That led to the war in Ukraine, but we're not sure that Putin and Dugan have ever met. He's important, but he's he's not a superstar intellectual. He's probably like a Dinesh D'Souza, maybe a Steve Bannon in American terms.
3: (laughs) Okay, but it brings it to the doormat a bit for uh, Vladimir Putin, though, right? Does that increase the risk of attacks in Kiev, say, tomorrow?
6: I think it does. So I've been making phone calls all day, and I've talked to people across the country, and people are, they don't know what to make of tomorrow. They're very nervous. The State Department put out a statement, the, the, the embassy in Kiev did, sorry, and they said, get out of Kiev yeah. if you can. And right. they're very concerned about it. So, yes, the, the murder or the, the death of Dugina, uh, Alexander Dugin's daughter, uh, does raise the stakes. And also the, the, the uh, strikes in Crimea raise the stakes as well. Putin was not expecting that at all. But in terms of who's responsible, I don't have a good answer for you. All I have are are four guesses, and none of them are satisfactory.
3: Four guesses? I have four
6: guesses. So guess number one is, if you believe the Russians, which I never do, they say the Ukrainian secret services did it. Ukraine denies it. It doesn't make any sense. Ukraine does not benefit and it was also done in the most secure neighborhood in Moscow. So I'm going to give that 0% Okay, likely.
3: we're down to three.
6: Okay, did it, number two is a financial beef with the Dugina family. Mm-hmm. Maybe, I don't think so. Number three is a false flag operation. The Russian Secret Service did it to distract oh. from something they plan to do. So let's wait and see. And then number four, I think, is also unlikely. Uh, a growing armed rebellion within Russia, because there have been strikes against military recruitment offices, and other acts of sabotage. But none okay. of these are satisfactory answers. So
3: you're not buying any of those? You're not telling me it's a false flag?
6: No one knows. I, I, I've, I've called all the best Russia mines in Washington, and, and wow. no one knows.
3: Well, boy, I didn't know we were going here today. This is fascinating, Melinda. I, now, look, I don't want to force you to, to try to predict the future because no one knows what's going to happen when the sun comes up in Ukraine. Uh, but how concerned are you about the capital? What does Vladimir uh, Putin have in mind that... Uh, zelensky describes uh deliberately here as uh what's the word that he used uh, something despicable that could be yeah, place said, he said
6: he it depends on any translator he either said nasty mm. or, or disgusting that's okay. what putin has in mind tomorrow so this is, this is the 30th first anniversary of ukrainian independence it's probably the biggest holiday one of the biggest holidays in the country and I think it's particularly meaningful because of everything that's happened this year. So we don't know. I think it's going to be lots of, of missile strikes across the country. And I think it may include Kiev, but I, no one knows. Like I said, I, I call people in North in Kiev and then in, in Odessa and people are sheltering in place. They're planning to work from home. They know where their bomb shelters are and they're going to wait and see. And honestly, what kind of, life is this. School's about to start in Ukraine. Uh, it's really, really hard to, to make a life uh, wh- when everything can go up in the clouds in minutes.
3: So you don't see this as a turning point. This is going to be a single day uh, kind of uh, spasm potentially by Russia, not not a new offensive against the capital.
6: No, I think they could turn up the heat. But you have to remember, the city of Kiev is the best defended city in the country. Yeah. It has a phenomenal commander it has very strong security. It has the best air defenses in the city. It is not going to be easy to take the city of Kiev. So the, the, the worst they can do is menace the city uh, yeah. but with missile shelling.
3: And as we've seen, if they can, even if they can get in, they can't get out. Melinda, I'm delighted you could join us. Melinda Herring, Deputy Director the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center, starting off the fastest hour in politics. We have a lot to talk about this eve of the anniversary as we assemble the panel next. Six months in. And Independence Day, the 31st for Ukraine, as the U.S. continues to send billions of dollars in weapons in what some people call a proxy war. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are up next. We'll check traffic and markets for you on the way, too. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. This is Bloomberg.
1: You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight athletes actors artists but what about the people behind the scenes you know the ones who make it all happen the lighting engineers the sideline photographers the caterers they're small business masterminds and if there's one thing they have in common it's making their money work harder that's why they have a business bank account with quickbooks money where they are now earning a generous five percent annual percentage yield yes five percent apy making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
0: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
3: You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The latest from Ukraine. U.S. warns of fresh Russian strikes near civilians. Bloomberg reporting that Russia is preparing to launch intensified strikes against Ukraine's government facilities in the coming days. Vladimir Putin called the car bomb that killed the daughter of an ally a dastardly crime. All this on the eve of the six-month anniversary and the 31st Independence Day of Crimea. Thanks for being with us on Sound On. The signature panel is with us, Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg politics contributors. Uh, Rick, this is uh, quite a moment that you have reminded us of. This was supposed to be over in three to five days. So there are a couple of different ways to look at this. But having just spoken with Melinda Herring, uh, more than six months of attrition uh, sounds pretty tough. How long can U.S. support continue as Ukraine tries to fight Russia?
5: Well, I think it's indefinite. I mean, you heard the comments that you played earlier by Mitch McConnell. Yep. Uh, he sounds all in. And the president's announcement of $3 billion today in further aid from the U.S. On, it literally is long-term aid, improving so this the could be of years, infrastructure Rick. of the security. So, yeah, I mean, I think they're planning on a long-term, multi-year Uh, situation where uh, bolstering the security of Ukraine is going to be an important priority for the Biden administration.
3: How do you keep the American people with some long wars in their recent memories, Jeannie, uh, supporting this for that duration?
4: That's the challenge. And I think we see a real need for the Ukraine to prove to people in the United States and into the West that this aid is needed and they have to keep making that case. And that's what Vladimir Zelensky has been so, uh, you know, incredibly good about doing and able to do, but it's hard to keep this up in a sustained way. They have the benefit of having bipartisan support so far on that. But one, you know, sort of a, a warning sign is the impact on the global economy, because as people outside of Ukraine feel pressure economically, there will be questions raised. Three billion in aid today. A lot of aid has been given by the United States and the West. How long do you keep that up and how much? And are they getting what they need? To Melinda's point, are they going to get the long range missiles that they say they so desperately need?
3: Zelensky vows uh, that the war will end in Crimea. Another line uh, from him at this meeting today, the Crimea platform. Rick Davis, is he right? Well, that's certainly uh,
5: what he's been saying really since the war began, is that um, they consider status quo anti right? They're not just going back to uh, where the lines were drawn when the Russians, after they invaded in 2014, but they want Mm -hmm. it all back. They want Crimea back. They want the Donbass back. And and right now, I mean, he's got an argument to do that. I mean, you talked about earlier uh, the attacks in Crimea, uh, shocking, I think, the Russians because it was a level of uh, penetration into that space that they hadn't seen before. So he seems to be making his uh, claim on that property. And I think that uh, probably going to elicit a equal and opposite reaction, unfortunately, tomorrow uh, around Ukraine Independence Day.
3: How worried should the U.S. be about this? Obviously, there's uh, they're they're taking some protective measures for our diplomatic corps or the, the the small number of folks who are there right now Jeannie. but we could see some pretty difficult images tomorrow and of course that could only uh you know, reinforce the case here for U.S. involvement.
4: Yeah, I mean, I mean, exactly what Melinda said and and Zelensky has said particularly nasty is what we're expecting. That's why the United States has made this case. You know, one thing I think we should be cognizant of is we, there is a surprise that Russia didn't, um, wasn't able to, at least on their part, run in there in three to five days and end this thing. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side of that, we should also note that to many people's surprise, Russia's economy is also been able to bear the brunt of really, really tough sanctions, at least so far, and they've done it on the back of places like India, China. Mm -hmm. So that's something we should also keep in mind that a lot of people weren't expecting after sanctions this tough.
3: Selling real cheap oil, uh, Rick. You know, we we know, however, that Vladimir Putin does not have access to semiconductors or a lot of the hardware that he needs to continue to replenish his military. The Pentagon says Russian casualties are in the area of 80,000. You know, at what point can Vladimir Putin, you know, not continue this?
5: You know, it's a great question. I mean, when we were looking at the buildup before the invasion on the border of Ukraine in the Donbass, we were talking about like 120, 150,000 people. And now more than half of those are dead. Now, if someone had told Vladimir Putin that it's going to cost him half the army, he's got a raid on the incredible. border, and more than that in equipment and, 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 and ammo, I, I wonder if he'd have really thought it through. Would that have been a deterrent to him? But mm-hmm. this, is, this is still, I think, early stages in a war that could, we were just talking about it, last a very long time. What price is Vladimir Putin willing to pay in blood and treasure to sustain this adventure? And how much will his population allow him to do it? Maybe yeah. these assassinations that occurred yesterday are an indication that the population's getting restless.
3: So you forecast another six months out, uh, Jeannie. Melinda said it's going to be years. That look, uh, the, the first presidential debate is next June. So the war in Ukraine is going to be a major uh, issue at that period of time. Will there be a Democrat and Republican split on this? Will the nominees uh, be able to agree?
4: You know, I, I think it's going to be interesting. I think we're going to see sort of um, a split in the parties, if you will. So I think you yeah. do have some Republicans who say we've got challenges at home. You know, we should be more focused here. You also have that on the Democratic side as well. So there may be some strange bedfellows in that regard. By and large, so far, there has been widespread bipartisan support right. for, for this. But again, that depends on what happens economically and mm-hmm. it depends on, you know, if if there is something nuclear, for instance, at this nuclear facility, how long does the United right. States people and the West continue to support this? Could so- a
3: presidential candidate afford to oppose this war, Rick? I don't think so. I
5: think this is a patriotic uh, message to America that we have to sustain
3: democracies around the world. And this is the one that's most under attack. It's all coming. Rick and Jeannie stay with us. Our signature panel. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. This is Sound On. This is Bloomberg. You don't have to be from New York to appreciate some of the races playing out in today's primary. None more compelling, at least for me, than what some are calling the Clash of the Titans, because it pits two former allies and longtime Democratic leaders against each other. If you're from New York, you certainly know who they are. And this is all essentially thanks to a redrawn map. Sometimes it pits two people of great experience and with a long relationship against one another. So here we are on the Upper East Side. It's Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney.
2: Being at the forefront of women's rights has taught me we can fight back and win if we just don't quit. I approve this message because it also taught me you cannot send a
4: man to do a woman's job.
3: You cannot send a man to do a woman's job, she says in the campaign ad. that got a lot of traction. And of course, that man. Staring from across the park from the Upper West Side is Congressman Jerry Nadler. Our country stands at a crossroads with our democracy at stake, with a runaway Supreme Court uh,
4: upending uh, 50 years of precedent and eliminating women's right to choose, and an insurrectionist Republican Party uh, for the first time in our history trying to
3: stop the peaceful transfer of power. That's Nadler at uh, recent New York One debate. So you can, you know, look, these are both very well-known candidates around here. As I mentioned, I don't know, former allies, is this kind of blown up in the media? But they they were elected together, they were freshmen together in 1992, fresh faces, and both rose to uh, big roles. She was the first woman to chair oversight, is the first woman to chair the Oversight Committee, and Nadler, of course, the Judiciary Committee. Sixty years of combined experience, somebody's not going to make it here. Joe Crowley is probably getting heartburn listening to all of this. The former congressman, Democrat from New York, is with us right now on Bloomberg Radio. It's great to have you back, uh, Congressman. Uh, is is this tough for you to watch?
7: No, not really, not at all. Uh, it's uh, it's interesting. There's no question about it. Um, I've been there. I, I've done that. I know what the, they're going through to some degree. Um, but your characterization of it, the clash of the titans, is pretty accurate. I mean, you have two thirty-year yeah. incumbents. Going at it. And, you know, they 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 really have been political allies throughout the years, um, minus the notion or idea that they might possibly be thrown into the same district, because that's always been a possibility. Yes. And so. um, you know, uh, th- this day may may have been coming. I think after 30 years of service, you, you thought those days behind you, being thrown in with another incumbent. Uh, you know, New York was supposed to be the big blue wall. We're supposed to stop uh-huh. uh, the losses that were going to seal up parts of the country and pr- push back on that. But instead, uh, you have just not this happening, but some other interesting races in, in New York as
3: there well. Uh, well, the other so incumbent that I that I, yeah. you know we're watching of all of us here, of course, uh, Sean Patrick Maloney. Uh, who's you know he's not just any candidate either. He leads the House Democratic Campaign Committee. That's New York Seventeen, right? He's backed by uh, Nancy Pelosi by the establishment. Uh, I, I look, there's there's very noisy numbers on this one. Does he keep his job?
7: Well, I think he does. Um, you know, uh, Sh- Sean is running in the district that his home is in, hmm. uh, and so I know there's been a lot of talk about you know what was this really his district to run in. You know, yeah, when your right. house is in that district, it makes it, it, makes it, it, makes it kind of obvious when you're going to run. And he's running against a, a, an up-and-coming pal in uh, um, this uh, um, um, Biagi, by the way, who was a former intern of mine uh, oh, years man. ago. Um, okay, so we have to and, just stop
3: right there because that means your former intern is being backed by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez which yeah, means life everything is, life is interesting <laughs> yeah I, everything uh, right side up is now upside down uh, joe crowley what a business uh, well, I what, mean, is, what does a, that mean to you when you see w- when you see that attack oh god i can't, can't i want to hear what you just said when you see an attack like that from the the progressive left if i don't even know if i'm supposed to call it that the aoc versus pelosi uh what does that tell you about the district
7: well i i think it You know, it it says more about this notion or idea that Democrats aren't progressive enough, which is, Mm -hmm. I think, especially especially being in New York, is pretty uh, absurd. But um, uh, I think, you know, this district itself is not an inner city district by any stretch of the imagination. The notion of defund the police Mm -hmm. um, is not uh, something that's welcomed uh, in, in this district at all. So I do think that there are advantages here. That this is not my old district. There, there are advantages here that I think that Sean Patrick Maloney is going to take advantage of. The district. Are you
3: supporting him or have you been to win. publicly?
7: No, Sean's Sean's an old friend. I understand, um, and uh, I I I think he's going to win this election. I have not. No one has asked me for an endorsement. Uh, so in any of these races, quite frankly, okay. yeah. so uh, that's okay.
3: Well, there, look, there have been a, quite a number of interesting races, and and one that is being looked at as a bit of a proxy for the general, as uh, as you well know, is is New York nineteen here, and it, what a what a bizarre situation mm-hmm. to think that you're electing somebody to have the job for what three months, and then it, the the district moves again. Uh, but Pat Ryan, right. the Democrat, a county exec, he's got a you know good resume, West Point grad, uh, has right. gotten into a real uh, uh, argument over issues with Mark Molinaro, the Republican. This mm-hmm. is being framed as an actual above-board argument over political issues that could give us a glimpse. I don't want to overplay it into what we might see in November. Do you think so?
7: Well, I think in terms of the power of the decision by the Supreme Court to overturn Roe, that many eyeballs are watching this particular race because it's the first opportunity to have a real head-to-head Democrat-Republican in a district, as you say, that won't really exist in the same format uh, in a couple of months. In fact, uh, Molinaro. Uh, will be running in a different district in November, <laughs> as will Pat Ryan for two different seats. It's amazing. Um, but I think because this was a district where both Biden won the last election narrowly and Trump won narrowly in the election before that in 2016, yeah. Yeah, yeah. people are looking at this as a really um, 50-50 swing district. And so uh, in, in this off-year election for president, Democrats should struggle more in a district like this. And so that's why people looking at this, if 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 Ryan is to win, it it may say it may say say something very powerfully about that
3: Supreme Court decision. It's the definition of a toss up here. Uh, Congressman, Mm -hmm. I have less than a minute here. But when when you're running, when you're in this business, when you're watching your districts move around you, are you just out on a regular basis walking the outer reaches of the district to know where the heck the lines start and stop?
7: (laughs) I'm not, (laughs) you know, it's almost impossible to do that. But uh, I think, you know, you got to be careful not to disparage other parts of the great city of New York where you might huh. one day represent <laughs> them, possibly. Wow. So that's, that's, that's one thing you should do. A
3: little <laughs> advice do. from former Congressman Joe Crowley. Great to have you back with us, sir. And uh, happy primary day in New York. As I mentioned, some folks will be hitting the polls on their way to work. And because it's New York, you know, on their way home from work and All things in between. We'll reassemble the panel next and hear from Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg.
1: You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds.
3: The fastest hour in politics on a primary day. What else could you ask for? You know what voice we did not hear in that great conversation with Joe Crowley was one of the other candidates in this race that's pit the two titans against one another, right? This is the Carolyn Maloney-Jerry Nadler race. Well, there's another candidate in this race that's actually made it to the debate stage and uh, an up-and-comer, almost beat Carolyn Maloney, as a matter of fact, in 2020, name is Serge Patel, a former Obama aide uh, that's frequently part of the bio here and running on generational change. Before we reassemble the panel, I want you to listen to his message as he was standing next to these two 30-year veterans.
0: Look, 1990s Democrats have lost almost every major battle to Mitch McConnell and Republicans. Trumpism is on the rise, even if we defeated Trump. To defeat it, we need people with new ideas and energy. Now tonight you're gonna hear two distinct arguments from three candidates. Two of them are going to be talking about the past, and I'm going to be talking about the future.
3: Interesting. Speaking of the past, uh, that, that same New York One debate, uh, Congressman Nadler starts rattling off his bona fides, uh, including, you know, a lot of people say, well, gosh, he's so well-known in name recognition because of, well, the Trump impeachments, the impeachment trials. Uh, but here, listen to how he put it.
4: And I have passed the... Um uh, two impeachments. In my in leading this, I've impeached uh, Bush twice. I've passed the, Bush. Uh,
2: the strongest, gu- and on other subjects, I passed the strongest gun control legislation yeah. in 30 years.
3: I've passed the Respect for Marriage Act. It's just interesting to me how these things can work out as we reassemble the panel here. Noting the New York Times endorsement, the Chuck Schumer endorsement, the Elizabeth Warren endorsements of Jerry Nadler. Is he the best candidate for New York? Rick Davis is with us, Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg politics contributors as the Democrat in this uh, in this panel here. Jeannie, your thought on that, you know, New York, well, is the seniority the important part or does Mr. Patel have a point? 1990s Democrats need to at some point get out of the way.
4: Yeah. I mean, Serge Patel, you know, he is 38 years old and he certainly does make a case. And we know this looking at the age, quite frankly, of Democratic leadership in the House in particular that we do need to think about generational change as Democrats. But, you know, this issue of Nadler's health is something that Maloney has brought up a lot. She described him as half dead at one point. Said For making
3: the Bush remark, right? He, didn't, yeah, he forgot which president he, he Yeah, approached.
4: said he won't be. suggests he won't be healthy enough to finish the term. They said he lost consciousness at one point. It's getting very, very ugly out there for two people who have been, you know, friends at least for thirty years. Right. Um, but, but you know. It, In Nadler's defense, he came back when Patel made this case and said, that's not how Washington works. You need seniority in Congress to get things done. I can pick up the phone and call the president. And that is a, you know, an important point to be had.
3: Is that an argument for voters when it comes down to it, Rick, or uh, or or for a different audience when you start talking about uh, seniority? Do, Do voters actually care about the fact that, you know, somebody's a chair on a committee or does that just mean bigger endorsements and more money?
5: Well, it, for sure, uh, voters care about bringing home the bacon. Uh, and uh, and so if you're in a position where you can help uh, the district by being in a seniority position, uh, Alphonse D'Amato was probably one of the best at that, huh. a New Yorker, a vintage uh, candidate and, yeah. and elected official senator. And, and, and that was the standard, and, th- and it still is. If you are in a powerful position, as long as you don't forget what district you're from or what state you're from, then you can use that power to featherbed your district and ensure that people will want to return you. And a new candidate like Patel, who's coming, you know, with the basics of smart and aggressive and youthful, mm-hmm. doesn't have any ability within the seniority system of the House of Representatives to have a chairmanship of a committee or yeah, to be right. able to bring home appropriations to his district.
3: New York City has a new freshman in that case. Uh, I asked uh, Joe Crowley about this uh, Sean Patrick Maloney race. Does he keep his job tonight, Jeannie? Uh,
4: you know, it is looking. It's hard to know. The polls are, are not uh, really telling in this race, right. I don't think. Um, I think he's got a good shot. Um, he does that does Pelosi
3: have... endorsement do for him what it did for Jerry Nadler or appears to be doing?
4: Um, It could. You know, Biagi is also a really, really attractive candidate. I was listening to some of her supporters today, and there is a lot of energy on her side. But I have to tell you, this is New York's second primary. It is really, really hard to get people out to vote on the 23rd of August when people are thinking about going away for vacation. So I think it's going to be a turnout battle. And Maloney has both the establishment support, the money, the name recognition. So it's an uphill battle for her for certain. But It does, you know, really, I think, really raise the prospect again about this sort of generational change and what we've seen consistently in New York, and the country, in the Democratic side about progressives versus the more moderate establishments.
3: This time tomorrow, we get to distill the results and hear about it uh, from Rick and Jeannie. I'm looking forward to that, not just uh, uh, New York, but hopefully we'll have uh, solid results from Florida. I don't mean to get into the comedy portion of the program. So. Uh, Well, sometimes we wait. What can I say? Now, big breaker today. Uh, This is going to be happening tomorrow. And I'd love to hear from you both on this. Joe Biden, uh, apparently making good on a campaign promise. Let's go back to the campaign trail. If you can use the magical harp in your head here. We're going back to Broward County. Remember when he was doing the drive-ins and like during COVID instead of clapping, people honking their horns. It just it'll bring you back. Here's Joe Biden, candidate Joe Biden.
4: We're going to make sure you can wipe out your college debt as well.
3: Honk that horn.
4: We give more help to racehorses than we do college students.
3: Who wrote that line? Uh, But here we have on the terminal, Biden to unveil student loan plan as allies fret. It's too meager. Uh, advocates pushing for more than $10,000 in debt forgiveness. But isn't that what he's been talking about? We're not exactly sure how this is going to go and where the limit will be. Uh, It had been uh, pitched before as uh, uh, capping it at incomes or family incomes at $125,000. We'll see if that ends up being the case uh, tomorrow. Rick, I keep seeing on Twitter uh, from Biden critics that there he goes, boy, talk about this is like, this is bare knuckle, buying votes. Is that the politics here, or is it better than that?
5: No, I can't figure it out. I mean, he, the only thing that's different between that campaign promise and today is 9% inflation. And, <laughs> and, and I hate waking up and reading Larry Summers and agreeing yeah. with him. It drives yeah. me nuts. <laughs> but he says, <laughs> look, this is it. inflationary. Why would we add fuel to the fire at this moment? And mm-hmm. I think he's right. And so... You know, I hate to say it, but um, the the fact that Biden has not understood that his job today politically is to bring down inflation and he opens him up, himself up to that argument is yeah. crazy right before an election like this.
3: Uh, I'm glad you mentioned Larry Summers, Jeannie. You probably saw the tweets. That's where he dropped uh, uh, his opinion on this quote. I hope the administration does not contribute to inflation macroeconomically by offering unreasonable generous student loan relief or microeconomically by encouraging college tuition increases. And he went on to write more. He's replying to himself to make the case. uh, Jeannie, is this a risky move for the White House or does the president have a slam dunk here for the midterms?
4: It's a very risky move for the White House. Um, You know, he promised it, though, right? He did promise it. And and Students in this country carry $1.6 trillion in debt. I face them just next week. It is an astronomical amount. And what frustrates me about this issue is there's very little discussion about why our college universities cost so much money. Huh. And that's something that has to be tackled. Larry is right. There is a real risk of exacerbating inflation. Biden administration already canceled more student loan debt than any other administration in history, 32320000000 billion. And so I think he does take a step. I think he'll try to moderate it. But I do think a real discussion needs to be had about why we have so much debt towards students in this country. It, as you know, having having children, it is a real, real problem in our yeah. system.
3: Well, the NAACP uh, is concerned about what at least, these are just reports. We don't know where the numbers are gonna be. But if the $10,000 uh, number is on there, uh, you can count the NAACP a critic. Uh, if the rumors are true, this is from President Derek Johnson, we've got a problem, he says, and tragically we've experienced this so many times before. This is not how you treat black voters who turned out in record numbers and provided 90% of their vote to again save democracy in 2020. That's pretty heavy stuff, Rick.
5: Yeah, it's uh, it's it's full of criticism this policy. Uh, I'm uh, actually uh, assuming that they've got polling that shows them somehow benefiting from this, because mm-hmm. from a public policy point of view, how about all the people who weren't able to go to college, who you know, as described in this last segment, uh, who who also have been slaving away to try and make a living and yep. and advance themselves, and 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 so. You know, it's just it's it, it creates a division within uh, his own caucus, but also in the country. And I just I, I I think it's too easy a political ploy. Right. I mean, it's just naked politics. Uh, the chief executive of the country writing a check mm. to people who went to college. I mean, so I you just, think it's buying votes. I think it's buying votes.
3: Every dollar spent, Larry Summers writes, uh, Jeannie, and you work in academia. Every dollar spent on student loan relief is a dollar that could have gone to support those without the opportunity to go to college. Is you he right?
4: He's absolutely right. And this has been the challenge and this is gonna be the criticism that the administration's gonna to have to face up. And it's an old story. You make promises on the campaign trail yep. and then you're held to them. And they've been pushing this can down the road. Now that's come time tomorrow that we're gonna hear what he has to say about it. But it's a real challenge.
3: You said it, we set up tomorrow perfectly. We will have more on this. The president will have spoken. We'll have results from New York and Florida. With the best panel in the business, Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano here on the Fastest Hour in Politics. If you showed up late, subscribe to the podcast. It's called Sound On. And I'll see you back here tomorrow. I'm Joe Matt, In Washington, this is Bloomberg.
0: You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through.